0: Hello, and welcome to the Tennis with an Accent podcast, where we talk about tennis by connecting the present of the sport with its storied past, be it the nuanced unpacking of the individual stories, long-form interviews, or the detailed tour-level analysis, we have you covered.
1: Hello, everyone. Welcome to Tennis with an Accent. This is your host, Saqib Ali. Today, I'm excited to be speaking with one of the big names in the coaching business for the last two decades. And no stranger to big stage, it's uh, Aussie Roger Rashid. It's an absolute delight, Roger, hosting you here on this podcast.
0: Uh, thanks very much for having me. It's a pleasure to be on and I look forward to uh, talking what we, we uh, both enjoy, and that's tennis.
1: Absolutely. I don't take these conversations for granted because, you know, like you have worked with some of the biggest names. So just an introduction not that your work needs an introduction, just your personal introduction, how far you go back with your connection to tennis. I know you were a promising junior once you were the youngest man to qualify for a major, if I'm not mistaken, in 85 Till Leighton Hewitt. Your charge broke that record maybe later on. So just fill the listeners in how did the love affair started with you and tennis.
0: I think, look, it's an interesting journey. You know, I only... I picked up a racket when I was twelve years old. You know, playing. I was at um, at my primary school, and and there was a lunchtime tournament, and um, some of us boys entered the tournament and just for fun. And at the end of that week, I was the winner. So, um, I didn't really have exposure to tennis, and um, it was more Australian rules football. And and then all of a sudden, you know, like any child, I think if you if you win something or you, and you you you're getting some wins, you, you enjoy the game a little bit. And and that sort of got, you know, that's how I got involved in tennis. And um, so that, you know, and I played it, played a host of sports and Australian rules football was one of it was the major one, but tennis started uh, taking pl- uh, part as well of my um, weekly and weekend activities. And um, yeah, and then obviously uh, I was, I was able to get some coaching through uh, an auntie of mine who saw that I may, may have some talent there and um, you know, and, and got involved in the game that way, and, and started playing some tournaments, and uh, it was re- it was really quite organic, and it wasn't it wasn't fueled by family members uh, who have got a history in tennis, and so there's a sort of a a, a lifeline that's sort of been generational. It's uh, it was very much very organic, and, and something that I was doing on my own own devices really, and uh, not pushed into. So uh, I guess when you when you sort of have some uh, uh, ball skills at, at and you're actually able to play the ball sports, um, then it'll be sort of more about what takes your uh, fancy, what you're excited by, and and I guess who the influences are through your journey, uh, which actually end up um, leading you down a path.
1: Sure. So was it a difficult choice between choosing among the two sports, Aussie rule football and tennis? I know you've also played uh, the Aussie rule football at a quite high level. So talk about that choosing between the two.
0: Yeah, look, i I think it was definitely, it was a situation where back back at that time in tennis, if, if you go back uh, through the years, you needed to, the whole, the, the thinking was you needed to make the tour, you had to get on the tour early. So when I was 15, I, you know, I was, um, I decided to take tennis on as, as the number one sport, even though Australian rules football was very much dominant, that, that was uh, that was my major sport around the country. I was probably in, in in the best handful, and you know I was I was offered some um, uh, a place at two major football clubs in in Australia uh, to actually as a young as as young talent, obviously not to play in their number in their A grade side, but uh, to get to get into the system. So, um, and that doesn't normally happen too often. So, but at the time when I was at at my schooling and in front of some a couple of sporting icons, really, in, um in South Australia in in sport in football, uh, who were helping me, um, guiding me a little bit, in mentoring. They, you know, we just thought that maybe tennis was uh, the pathway to go early, and if and if it didn't happen to work out in tennis, because the nature of the beast back then was you needed to still get on the tour and be be good early. You know, turn. Turn professional and get there at 17, 18 and nineteen, and 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 things needed to happen at that young young age. Obviously, as we know now, uh, right now the current climate that's extremely hard to do um, with the physicality of the game and the rigors of, of the of of what the tour provides on a yearly basis. So, um, so I took the tennis journey and went to uh, went to the US and, and to New Braunfels in Texas, just outside of San Antonio, at John Newcomb's tennis ranch and. Uh, I was able to get a scholarship there, so uh, for a year with a whole host of players from around the world. Just you know, there were probably about twenty of them, um, including Americans, um, and that was something that I had to jump at because my parents weren't uh, did, weren't financially in a position to uh, put me through any tennis schooling or academies or, or fly me overseas and do all those sort of things. So um, I went down that that road and spent a great year in New Brambles. I loved the the American. Um, you know the fact that there was there were just it was a numbers game there were more you know the first sanctioned uh, sectional tournament I played uh, was the first week I got there and and you know it was a 128 draw you know I'm only used to 32 draws here and sort of in, you could actually work your way through to the quarterfinals without dropping too many games whereas my very first round over there you know five days after I've arrived I'm, I'm three hours in at 6-4 in the third and uh, you know, I, I ended up actually winning that tournament, but every every match went to deep three sets and uh, it was one of those grinds, but it was it was perfect because that's what you wanted to do. You wanted to be in front of competition um, and, and a lot of variety in, in match play and, and the people that you're around culturally. So it was a great year for me uh, to do that and be away from home at such a young age at 15. But um, yeah, so the tennis journey happened and um, you know, if I fast forward the, down the road, it was really, you know, I started then in that, in that year actually having back back issues, which uh, I didn't really know too much about, but I um, I just sort of dealt with them. And then that ended up taking me out of the game at 21 and um, into my 22nd year. And, and I think, you know, I had a, my, I guess my, one of my strengths and one of my downfalls was I had a, I had a real big appetite for uh, for enduring pain. I like to work against force. I like to train against force, and uh, so I like to push myself and 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 sort of see where I could take myself. And regardless of what sort of my body was feeling, and um, yeah, that's a good resilience. There's a bit of resilience around that, but also I probably probably didn't sort of uh, treat the issues uh, as they would have been treated now in the modern day with with so many people around you, and and that's um, yeah, that was just courtesy of the environment.
1: Yeah. And there's there's definitely a lot to ponder there. I mean, if uh, anyone who knows you, you know, especially the younger fans from your coaching experience, you were always like embodiment of fitness, right? And it's kind of ironic that your career had to be compromised at such a young age because of injury. So, and even, you know, your charge, Leighton Hewitt, who we we talk about later on in the show. uh, Do you think overall the information that's out there today compared to what it was even, say, 15, 20 years ago, you think different careers would have been not altered? Like, even if you look at Guga Curtain, look at Magnus Norman, even Hewitt, right? Uh, he was a player after, you know, some of those surgeries he's had. You think the information today, what's, you know, in hindsight, makes makes people wonder the choices that were available back then?
0: Uh, are they in some areas I I just think the basic, the, the, the baseline of it all is that um, and we were doing a lot of this as well. So yeah, then, you know, there's one thing I do love is, is the physical side of the game and, and, and any sport in, in any sport is actually tick off on the things that you can control. And that's one of them that I can actually get myself in physically the best condition, which actually does uh, contribute to the mental state of mind and, and, um, and also performance. So um, it wasn't the be all and end all it's it's not the uh the big foundations of what I uh, as a coach but um there's a lot more deeper stuff than that but it was a num- you know it was one of the very it was sat on the top table um about what you needed to tick off on so uh but we did it diligently and we did it with um you know with a lot of recover recovery pre pre um, um you know, looking after your body beforehand as well, so you could actually absorb the the, the loads as well. So, with more information now, um, I, I don't think the injuries have have lessened. I would actually say the games become more physical, more demanding. There's more expectation to do more. So, it's actually about the education around your body, um, what your body can deal with, and when you actually need to recover, and 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 learning that. It's okay to not be doing things. It's okay to to, to shut off and turn your body off and um, and mind and actually allow a recovery process so you can actually uh, be ready and be available at certain times of competition and certain times of the year. And I think that's the biggest thing. And um, look, I, we were—I remember with Leighton, especially just knowing his body, knowing you know knowing the energy that needed to be put into his game and, and the changes we were making that, you know, we spent a lot of times where we took ourselves off the tour, um, you know, when I started working with Leighton. And, you know, some people question that, but, you know, I was very much about longevity and, and how you could play um, that style of game and be sustainable and be current. And um, so, yeah, so there are certain things that may help, but I look at the current trends. If you look at it, you'll see there certain. There's certainly a high um, high injury rate. There's there's players, you know, with the with the all the information. It's it's more about um, understanding um, your body and 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 how you can get best value out of that.
1: Absolutely. And you were part of a very promising Aussie, you know, pool of Aussie players. You know, some of them your seniors like Woodford and Cash, and then Cahill, and also Jason Storlberg, who's probably a year younger. They all had amazing careers. So, how do you look back at that group, you know, and what are your memories? Um,
0: you know? Yeah, look, it was it was interesting because they were all, you know, they were all quite young. To, you know, started playing tennis really young. As I said, I was a twelve-year-old for the first time. So, my exposure straight away to Australian tennis and and you know the and Davis Cup and all those sort of things. You know, at that time there was. You know, there's Wally Masoor Pat Cash, there was, you know, Darren Cale, obviously, um, Mark Woodford, they were they were they're they're everywhere. Um John Fitzgerald. Uh they're all close friends of mine. Um, and and you know, out of South Australia where I live, you know, John Fitzgerald, Darren Cale, Mark Woodford, Leighton Hewitt, um, you know, Alicia Mollick. there was there's there's a host of um host of great players that came out of out of South Australia, just out of our little little small um small city. But so, they the one thing that was very um, very obvious to me, and and we carried that, and we really sort of uh, we were really proud of uh, of this fact is that we just we gelled, and we were all about um, wanting others to be successful, and we're helping each other out on the tour. So there was a great cohesion of uh, of players that Australian players that wanted to help each other out wanted to wanted to get um, you know the most out of each other to help each other we 'd go and you know have practice sessions where you know we'd help each other well, you know what do you want to work on right let 's go for it you know, i'll help you out and you know and so we invested time with each other and uh supported but also i i guess if you if you went to a practice session we didn't need a coach uh to be pushing us in a in a, in a two or three hour practice session we could actually get there and go to work and love love what we were doing and really get stuck into things and actually and put everything on the line and out. and the practice sessions were, you know, some of the some of the most memorable moments because we it was all in and it wasn't need, you know, there didn't need to be the uh, the coaches that were sitting there saying, Okay, warm up, okay, you know, be stretch, you know, and, and and doing things that, you know, micromanaging to a to a level and having the physio there and and other people just standing around courts and um, you know, like we see today where there's a host of people around, there, there was a real pride around going, getting out there and doing some work, doing some hard work and knowing that that was, you know, that you'd actually be proud of that and actually you'll get rewarded somewhere down the track. And, um, you know, I think, it's a, it, I think it's a lesson some players, you know, that, um, a lot of people can take now, young, young players, uh, that they can actually go out. And, you know, it's funny, if you just sat and watched um, young players step on the court, They'll be waiting. They'll be waiting for someone to do something and to to give them an instruction um, instead of just uh, grab some balls and get on with it. You know, like, like get on with it. So, and it's funny. There'll, there'll be times when you know, uh, through my consulting, I'll I'll just walk out onto a court or I'll sit off the court and I'll I'll wait and watch um, a couple of athletes get on the court. Um, and it might be in other sports as well that I consult for in that and it's amazing how they're sitting and waiting until the coach turns up to actually do anything and you're and it's sort of it's mind-boggling to me because I'm just thinking just get the balls and go and <laughs> and you know and do it and you know, because when you're out there right you know and you're playing in, in battle in competition you've got to do it yourself you've got to make things happen yourself so yeah we're very much at the moment um, got this real model where you know we're waiting um we're waiting for information we're waiting for the coach to tell us what to do or when you know what and how it works out and then there's then there's another person telling you something instead of actually being able to just get out there and and do it yourself and figure things out and i think that's a real component that's really important to to educate young young athletes coming up you know because the the drive and the push uh needs to be internal uh first and foremost and if it's not um you know you can get supported around the edges but you know and at times maybe that support system needs to take a step in front of you and take the lead but in in reality the majority of the time needs to be uh be driven by the external you know the fire inside to you know to actually to enjoy the sport to improve the sport develop yourself um and allow yourself to move forward and and create opportunities
1: Oh, this is brilliant, actually, this, the hard work, drive, and commitment you mentioned. It kind of sets the stage perfectly with your collaboration with Leighton Hewitt, which started sometimes in 2003. And the younger fans may not remember, but I, you know, I've been around too myself as a fan. So I remember when you were brought on, uh, there was like, you know, some commotion in the Australian circles that Hewitt deserves a more credentialed coach. And then you, you know, really took him to different heights. You know, you brought him to world number two. He was, I think, 15 or 17 ranked when you took over. You remember that? And, you know, was it a fueled motivation for you or you were pretty clear how you're going to go about this?
0: Um, Yeah,
1: oh, look, I remember
0: it all. It's, it's, uh, you know, the the noise is always there, isn't it? Um, Regardless of of who it is. And I think, you know, I actually started... um, doing some things with Leighton at the end of 2002 actually and 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 I and I was with him from that point on and then uh took over the reins in 2003 um, but the and it was yeah look it was it was different circumstances but you know for Layton you know Layton knew me he knew he knew what my character was and and that was important and when we spoke and when we talked about you know what we you know the, the vision as well you know I had a, I had a really clear um, you know, clear drive on where we wanted, you know, where I think Leighton could go, and and the fact that the game was, you know, we were very passionate about competition. One thing Leighton and, and I, uh, we we got on, we're on the same page with everything. You know, we just love the competition. Uh, bring out whoever, let's go. Um, you know, if we when we've got training weeks and training blocks and pre-season, let's get let's get some work done. Uh, let's look at development. Let's look at, uh, and I was really big on. Um, working in the now, really important to stay in the now and keep be present. Uh, but obviously, have a look at where the games uh, going. I needed, I needed the, I needed to be sustainable. I needed Leighton to have some growth, to take some challenges. To, uh, I'm a, I'm a risk taker. I like risk. Uh, I just think you need, and and it's got to be calculated risk. And sometimes it's not. But for the majority of the time, you need to risk because you need to. You need to open your eyes to what's available. We only use a little bit of, of what we have in general because we, draw, we normally put a protective um, armor around us uh, because of the uncertainty of what risk looks like. And um, and Leighton, you know, grew up playing his tennis. If you look at the way Leighton played his tennis when you, you're young, when you don't have uh, the big serve, the Marat Safin firepower, and, and Mark Philopousis or Pete Sampras, you know, if you're if you're the other version and you're and you're smaller in nature, you know, the ball stays alive longer. You need to keep more balls in play. You need to work, you know, you use your, your wheels, you you use your tennis now. and your tennis IQ about how to work the ball and work a point is greater than someone with heavy firepower when you're younger, because you've had to do more of it. Uh, You haven't been able to get the free points. So with that comes a lot of, uh, you play a lot of percentage style of tennis and, that was that was Leighton's game. Um, I was more about sort of breaking that mould and actually uh, looking at different ways to win points, looking at different ways to um, secure opportunities on the court. So changing his position to where he's standard, you know, his home base uh, where, he, where he naturally stood on the court um, and then exposing him to forward movements as well because he could volley so well. So um, it was just giving him a different lens, making him play a little bit more high risk uh, tennis and and understand that over time you'll, You'll be able to you'll be able to work that and mould that to to feel like it's not high risk. Um, and yeah, so so when you got uh, when I got the noise and and you could hear those things, it didn't really bother me because I was really clear in what I thought my what my coaching my tennis identity was, what my coaching uh, model was going to look like, um, and it, and how what the foundations were going to be uh, with that model, um, because I wanted that to be obviously. You know something that uh, had currency, but also it it was re- it would it would reward reward you as an athlete, um, and uh, and I just yeah I was in my own lane and uh, in the lane of the athlete and um together and and it didn't really bother me what um anyone said about it. Sure, you can go. You know at that stage, yeah, I could understand why people say, "Oh, where's why don't you get the high profile coach?" Um, but Gee, there's uh, there's something to be said for uh, you. Better be better be careful when you're actually. What is the high profile coach, um, <laughs> and 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 what do they bring with that? Because sometimes is it just a PR machine that drives that profile, um, or is it something that's got some uh, long term uh, sustainability? And my, I guess from the day one, my coaching structure was more about. Can I leave something that sits with the the person for life that is there you know whether it's about you know so and I was more my whole coaching brand from day one is about personal performance first and then get the skill get the get the whatever's attached to that so if it's tennis if you're a tennis player, my first thing's about. I need to get the best version of you first. I need to make you feel um, good. Good. I need to make you feel like you're inspired, you're excited about the daily challenges. Like what is it that actually makes you uh, feel good as a person and how do we develop that person? Because if that person's happy and vibrant and excited, well, everything that you do then that's related around their sport um, or business Let's take—we're obviously talking tennis here. Everything you do that you're—that's related to tennis, uh, whether it's on court, off court, the challenges that are attached to it—we're just attacking them with with great clarity because the person's there and they're present, and there's no, you know, because we're getting the best version of them. They're really and so that's that's generally been my um, that's been my foundations of coaching and dealing with people in. Uh, in sport and in life is actually looking after you first because that's really, that's the number one issue um, that we have. It's very clear that when you look at the athlete and you'll see they're in a bit of a rut and things aren't going well, forget about the tennis. My first question is what's happening outside the court? What's happening in your world? Because you would probably see that in their world, there's a lot of, um, it's probably... It's, there's probably a lot of distractions. There are a lot of things that aren't functioning, and that's taking away their energy, uh, taking away their, you know, their line of sight for for their sport and what they're trying to do. So, and then they walk on the court and they they don't have everything to offer to a game at you know at, at a world class level. And so you have your you losses. The motivation's not there. It's not. Um, so yeah, my very first thing is always to look at when I when I see players who you would. Think should be performing at a higher level uh, or can more consistently, have some more consistency around them, and they're not, and they're having some week in, week out results where they're where they're quite disturbing. I would, you would naturally feel like there's something that's in their world that's not
1: functioning well. Hmm. Wow, there's a there's a lot to uh, <laughs> there's a lot to so discuss not, from I'm there.
0: Not- I might, I might have moved off yeah, no, the... Yeah, no, a
1: bit no, no, because a lot of my questions sometimes will come from your response. I had a question or two ready, but uh, I want to just tie this in with what you said. You sound like a very, I, I mean, it's an understatement that motivation is one of, you know, you have motivational skills. So let's talk about Hewitt. you know, the two years when, you know, or four years, it had a peak where, you know, he read the Australian Open Final, first Aussie since Pat Cash, I think since 1988 when he lost to... Then he loses to Safin. But the big story in those years for Roddick, for Hewitt, was Roger Federer. The train just took Mm -hmm. off. And uh, today's fans, sometimes there's a weak era argument. I think we underscore Leighton Hewitt and Andy Roddick. We do a big disservice. But they were like world-class players. It's just like Federer started playing at a different level. So your motivational skills come into this now. Hewitt loses that tough U.S. Open final uh, in 2004. Then again loses to Federer. You know, at, at Wimbledon, I think, same year. So, and, and Hewitt himself is a proven player. So the question is coming now. How do you motivate a champion who just gets outclassed by his rival and is not finding solution? How do you motivate him after a loss? What's the larger picture here? Because it looks like Hewitt was, he wasn't leaving any stone unturned. He was just giving it his all. It's just like Roger just had another gear. And same could be said for Roddick. So how difficult is Roger Rashid's job? What's the delicate balance there when Leighton Hewitt is coming from a crushing loss? When do you speak? When do you address that loss? You know, just give us
0: yeah. Through that sure. Um, Well, a couple of things. That look, Andy Andy was a great player, and and there was, you know, and you're right, and there was Andy and, and Leighton at the time. Uh, Leighton obviously, you know, he, he gets to the pinnacle, so to, for a couple of years, and he's he's, he's a dual Grand Slam champion, and um, and and Roddy claims the US Open, and uh, gets to one in the world, and um, so these guys were playing in the year. It was interesting when when you know, when I was with Leighton early, we were talking, I talked about all the guys that were, that were around, that were coming up, uh, that were going to be turning up. And, and obviously Leighton and, and Roger, they came up together. But when you've got, and it's really clear in sport, that when you've got someone with a whole lot of tools in their toolkit, and so Roger had the whole alphabet in his toolkit, and, and he's very unique. And there are a lot of players that only have A and B, and there's some that have a few more and then uh and so the a and b and the c and d player uh, who've got three you know those sort of have got, have got a certain, and and this is not being um, this is not being derogatory to them but it's just it's just in, in life and in sport there's you you'll have these you have the outliers like like roger um the ones that have got just a, a normal skill set and a few more other things attached um who are obviously the top ten players are Slam winners they they find their game a lot earlier and someone like Leighton, you know, his game's all modelled up and, and sort of at a young age, because there's certain things that he can do that get him, you know, get, get him into a position. So you're sort of sort of locked and loaded a little bit. Um when you're Roger and you see a short ball and you think I can hit either option A, B, oh hang on, I can hit C, D, oh hang on, I can I've got the whole alphabet. Which one will I use? Uh, it takes you a lot more time to secure and define, refine and decide what game you're going to work with. And so there's always going, and so, and with that, it's frustration. So for Roger, a lot of frustration there internally, because it would have been, you know, sometimes it would have, it would have all worked out. Other times it would, you know, these these errors that turn up because he's experimenting. He's got so many different ways to experiment with his, with his shots. Um, and, you know, which is, which is the beauty. And we've been all been privileged to to see it. Uh, ripen and, and crystallize. But uh, so that Roger was always going to come and he was always, if he had some people in front of him or he could work it out, he was always going to crystallize and then be so dangerous that he was going to take you and, and, and overtake the group. That wasn't obvious for me. Uh, it was clear as day that was going to turn up. So, in the t- you know, if you look at their, their history earlier, Leighton had Roger. Um, and then obviously, and then Roger all, all of a sudden had everybody, um, and that was the same with Andy. You just you know, you find the way that you're playing Roger, and uh, he can he's got so, so many different ways that he can attack the match. The the, the his ability to manoeuvre and make change and actually keep flexible and uh, throughout the course of a match is quite enormous. Uh, versus some that have got a certain few things they can change and 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 work with, but there'll be limitations to that. So. Um, so that so that was always you know you have to be you have to be honest enough to understand that so when you're I guess you're you're looking after your athlete you control what you control so it's your lane your athlete let's build the best version of the athlete let's look at their assets and strengthen them and can keep keep making them as strong as possible keep building on their their uh, their weapons because at the end of the day you win with your weapons um, you need your weapons to be firing and you need to keep developing your weapons and continue to make them at that level. And then you look at areas of the game where if you get exposed a little bit, and I'm only talking about getting exposed by, when I'm coaching, when I was working with my players, I'm pitting them up against the best in the world. So if, they, if they're if they going to play Roger, how are they getting exposed? Where are they going to get exposed? Okay, how could we, could we potentially secure some of those areas and make them... Uh, you know, create some safety around those? Or how do we look after that area of the court? Um, So what do we add? What do we add there? But in hindsight, so not in hindsight, but my number one thing to Leighton all the time was go out and we play our game. We look look after our side of the court. We don't invest. um, This is when Roger was obviously climbed above everybody. We don't invest too much, too much energy on the opposition we know we look at a couple of areas that we want to work with. um, And I, I enjoyed looking at the, uh, you know, I I look at the weakness of the opposition, look at not necessarily their not technically, not necessarily. Yes. Technically at times, but it might be moments in matches might be under certain conditions. uh, Their, their anxiety levels, what they do in certain times of matches. Uh, There's a whole host of things that sort of sit under that, that umbrella. Um, and I might give the athlete a couple of things to look at, but in general, I want you to play the way you want to play the game and, and as often as you can. And because uh, you don't want to be reactive. Reactive when you – you have to react when you – you know, you be reactive when you need to, but at the, you know, the majority of time you want to build your, uh, your momentum by playing your version of the game you'd like to play. So – and, and the, the other thing is that to stay current to stay present, stay in the moment. And regardless of Roger's brilliance, if, if we're talking about Roger and, and in that moment with these guys, the moment when Roger brings out his brilliance where he's totally untouchable at periods of times, and there was there were big moments in 2004 where he was beating a lot of top 10 players in sets six love. Um, he, You've just got to ride that out and you've got to stay present and you've got to be available for a moment where you can actually get, get involved in the match. And Leighton was... Uh, so we really focused on that, and um, you know, yet he had in the U.S. Open final. Uh, it was six love, seven six six love. Um, Roger's tennis was mind-boggling. Uh, there were some things he was doing on the court. I won't I won't pull them out now specifically, but they were very clear to me um, that you you know you leant back in your chair, and, and I remember John Fitzgerald sitting next to me. At some point, we had some a couple of set plays we were trying to um, to do with Roger. And um, what he did off those, and the balls that he played off, um, the shots that he played off those particular shots were extraordinary. It was John Fitzgerald said? Did he miss hit that? And I said no, that was right out of the middle of the racket. And he, yeah, you know, so he, you had to, um, you just had to stay present. And you know, in that in that US Open final, Leighton, you know, got to it, got you know, he was it was seven six in the second set. He wasn't far away from, uh, from winning that set. You know, he had a you know second serve backhand return that he hit the net, which which would have gave him the set. Um, you know, it was a bit of bread and butter, but uh, for him at the time. And then all of a sudden you're one set all. So you don't, you don't, you don't look at it and say, he got railroaded. Yep. A couple of six love sets. And that's not, you know, that, that would suggest that he's got railroaded, but Roger did that to a lot of people. And, and then in the, you know, in the Davis cup final and in Melbourne, Layton was two sets of love down and, um, and, and Roger serving for the match and same thing, stay in there, stay involved. And, Roger didn't serve, you know, he broke and Leighton turned that around to win that in five sets. So, and we were always, a, I'm always of the opinion that if you're playing one of the superstars of any world sport, of any code, you just want to get to them as many times as possible. And, you know, you've got to be quite uh, understanding of the rally that if I can get, if I can get a win or two, you know, if we play 10 times and I can, if I get a couple of wins, that might be, that might be enough. It might be, you know, it's it's just the reality around it that you know if I, gee, if I want if I want a couple and they happen to be at the right time at a big moment, well, I'm happy. Do you know what? Do you know what I mean? It's like uh, I, just, I just think it's one of those those things. So we were very, I was very clear around what I, and Leighton knew that if you could just get into, and I'm very clear also to my players that if they could just get involved early and create some scoreboard attention and pressure, the tennis match looks a lot lot different. When you get the when, when you get the best and they, they get ahead early, they're unbelievable front runners. You can't ping them back. they very rarely will they let you let you loose. They put their hands around them, they free up even more. Uh, but if you can keep the score line where it's sort of it, it locks away, and, and that scoreboard pressure turns up. Well, then you're playing, you know. Then you're playing in a different space. And um, Leighton did, you know, he, he did a great job of being able to do that. To, you know, obviously Roger when he when he took over, but you know when he when he went head to head with Rafa, um, you know, we got a lot of wins early uh, with Rafa as well because of you know just his his ability to actually to sit and lock in and and fight and actually do some really cool things on the tennis court that we that I put in front of him uh, in matches. Um, you know, and uh, and the other guys, he, he obviously had a good record against as well. So um, yeah, it was it's quite fascinating. It was a different type of, and and it all it all relates to who you've got in front of you as a charge as well, what their DNA is, how they how they see c- competition. You know, um, one thing I didn't uh, you know didn't really have to spend a lot of time on with Leighton was uh, talking about how 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 to really compete. You know, there's a lot of players that are on the tour that don't understand competition don't understand are they if you if you ask them are they really competing they'll at all probably say yes, but you know i would I would beg to differ that a lot of players don't really understand the real the real word the real meaning of competing on a day to day basis and and that's and that a lot of times that's the difference between where their ranking sits with some of them.
1: Hmm. All right. So my next question here is, you know, you again planted a question in my mind. A lot of times we discuss generations because, you know, Federer just retired and, you know, the big three is clearly the golden era Throw Andy Murray in there. But uh, let's take a step back. And I want to hear from you. How tough was that those few years when at the top of the game, when you were coaching Leighton, how would you, scout the report card on Andy Roddick, David Nalbandian, Marat Safin, and Juan Carlos Ferrero. That was a pretty formidable group. We talked about Roger, but how good were these guys? And part B of the question is, how tough of a loss was that to get over against Safin in the 05 final when Roger was taken out? That could have been Leighton's big moment.
0: Yeah, look, I'll, um, I'll, I'll touch on the others first. I mean, Andy, I you know, loved coming up against Andy. Uh, Andy loved to compete. Uh, which which I thought was you know great um you know, he was uh, i I always thought you know and he was a, a great competitor obviously had a obviously had a fantastic serve and um he had a good you know he had a big forehand there were there were obviously areas that that we thought um that we could expose throughout the course of the match, and especially if I, especially over five sets if there was a five set match um and so, uh, so that so that was you know so but I really enjoyed the actual the you know the challenge of playing Andy Roddick. Um, I like what he brought to the court. And uh, um, Juan Carlos Ferreira, we practiced a lot with Juan Carlos. Uh, I always loved Leighton practicing with the Spaniards because they just they love to they love to do the work as well. Um, and you know he was obviously more complete complete player. Juan Carlos, um, but we again we. You know, Leighton liked that matchup. He just liked the fact that you know he, you know, it was sort of a ball that he that like that came nicely onto his racket. Um, And you know, sometimes it would be a battle of nutrition, Um, but other times I think you know Leighton had a little bit of variety with his slice Um, when he came into net. You know, he could actually finish the book. You know, he very confident about being at the net. So, um, so there were a few other little things that uh, we thought we could work with in that area. and, and Murat, um, was, you know, he, he was the wild card because he could play. Who else, who else is, did we talk about? Uh, Juan Carlos. Uh, no,
1: Andy. Bandy.
0: Now, Bandy was, I mean, what a hell of a player. I mean, you know, these guys are, these, these guys are like amazing players. Uh, there's, there's nothing, there's, there's nothing that, nothing you could say that's, you know, that, that doesn't suggest that. I mean, they're just, now, Bandy was one of those guys that, you know, it just I mean, his backhand was amazing, wasn't it? it was you know, it was, it was it was he could put that wherever he wanted to. His return of serve was great. He moved, at times he he moved really well, and there were times I, I thought we could expose him with his movement. And then there were times also where I thought his forehand let him down um, in in some in some key moments. And when talking, uh, serve was okay. Nothing, no, you know, you knew you were in. You knew you were always going to be in the service games, um, and. You know, for Leighton, that was gold because it just meant that, you know, and Leighton was a person that thought once the ball was in play, I can win that point. Um, you know, nothing's going to stop me. I'll win the point. So, you know, when you're feeding on that mentality, um, you know, and, and you can feel like you can get involved in all the service games, you're a different beast. And um, and also, uh, you know, I, I thought that uh, he could, you know, there were there were times when, you know, Leighton could get to now ban him mentally as well. So there was there was probably... a. Um, like was, his strength of mind was probably an advantage in the, in those in in those matches um, but what what an amazing player and we're, and we're talking you know we are talking small margins aren't we when we talk, when we talk about players like this and we talk about the matchups they're very small margins they're moments um, there's only there's only a handful of points that will decide the differential um, but um, you know but that is the point of the end of the sport and, and you're sort of looking at you're finding little ways um, and that's why I was really big on looking at the emotional intelligence of the players um as well when I scouted them I was very much um you know I did a lot of lot of time watching and and seeing what their their emotional what their emotional presence was like during during matches what time during matches under certain conditions under certain different types of players I think my scouting report was quite um intense uh, but I was really you know I was more about the person more so than uh, a lot of time about you know what their games look like because you know, we're dictated by our emotions. So it was how, how, how could you keep your emotions? Who, who was emotionally more level throughout the course of the match, and against what type of opponents was really important to me to find out. So um, I thought that was a that was an area that you could um, you could work with with your players. Um, and I think it's a strength if you've got you know if you've got some linear um, emotional presence during matches because you know there's good emotions and there's also you know damaging emotions out there on the tennis courts as well. So you need to sort of keep that. Within a range, um, as a as an athlete at the very pointy end, the Murat Safin Australian Open was look. It was it was an amazing it was an amazing moment. I, in two thousand and three, I remember sitting with Leighton saying, "Oh, we'll win the Australian Open two thousand. You'll win the Australian Open. <laughs> uh, I'll be I'll be watching. Um, uh, You'll win the Australian Open in two thousand and five. Big statement. Uh, we went on a real big campaign to change quite a few things in his game. Um, we we went on a campaign to you know. Add some, you know, add some uh, strength, weight, muscle, uh, power into his game. Uh, as I said, a lot more exposure to different different elements on the tennis court. Um, so it was a real, it was quite a big overhaul. Um, people might not have seen the overhaul, uh, as you know, if you're just sort of watching in and out. But you know, it was a it was a very it was very big overhaul. And and in that time, you know, in, in 2004, I took him off the tour. Uh, to actually make some real significant uh So in 2003, we took him off the tour to make some real significant changes and only played the, after the US Open, only played the Davis Cup ties. Um, in that period, you know, his ranking goes all the way down to 19. 12 months later, he's at number two, which is an extraordinary, if you think about that as a rise um, in, in our sport, going from 19 to two in a 12 month period, um, it's an extraordinary you know, achievement. In any and Roger was one. Um, so, but that was to actually look at long term gains and and make them sustainable as the game gets bigger and stronger. And as I said to him, you know, world sports and life is getting bigger, stronger. Uh, the athletes doing doing more and and got more available to them with racket technology. And uh, so so we need to evolve um, everything. And uh, and so at that, you know, when we get to the two thousand and five Australian Open. We had a few things that were actually up against us. You know, like we, you know, we had a court surface, which what probably wasn't uh, a preference because it wasn't a surface where the ball was coming onto your racket and staying within a nice hitting zone range. It was, it was one that actually jumped up and sort of came out of his hitting zones. Um, and, uh, and it wasn't as, it wasn't that, it wasn't a quick surface. Um, it was quite a slow surface actually. Uh, but he was physically in an amazing shape. Uh, he was. We were training. We were training like probably no other athlete was training at the time, um, and not too many would accept it now, probably, um, because we were training for specific specific moments in the match, and that was really predominantly the fifth set of a tennis match. Uh, so that that type of training was quite um, quite extreme, but it was actually there for a purpose, uh, and it really did serve his purpose because once we sort of achieved all that. Um, that activation, Leighton went on and won thirteen from thirteen uh, uh five set matches once he got to the f- final set. Uh so it was all proof in the pudding and um that it was actually um the method to my madness was <laughs> turned up. Um we got to that final it was interesting. We we went through I mean if you look at the draw, it was a you know it was a it's a tough draw that he had to get had to get through. Uh, it's a great, you know, it was, it would have been an all time great draw to to get through and win that and win the um and win the Aussie Open but we were in a cocoon it was it was a first night final um you know the the local television Australian television channel 7 the ratings were extraordinary they he still holds number 2 3 and 5 I think of all time viewing audience at, uh in sport um that that 2005 campaign um and we we got to the we got to that match and you know played he played you know had had a played a rough one against Chella four sets uh where there was that spitting incident uh you might recall that yeah. one and then there and then you know then there was now bandit and then there was Roddick and who he takes out the semi that's in Nadal drink um, right?
1: when favorites was in the
0: and when when Nadal took to, you know took Nadal out in five he you know um we had Blake James Blake in that match round in that tournament as well I think in the second round. Um so it was quite a, it was quite an extraordinary field. Um and you know, Lakeman was doing yes, who we were getting some night matches, so it was it wasn't the the physical fatigue of the sun, but um it was still the emotional and I and my job was to sort of take I'm really big in the majors of actually limiting uh your exposure to emotional energy. So play your match and really, you know, I feel like the day off is the day off. You know, it's a slight um, you know, to even not be at the courts is really important, you know, I took him away from the courts. Let's not go to the courts. So Go and do something like you're a tourist or just with your mates or, you know, friends and because you needed to deactivate. So when you actually got to the match day and that match, you had everything at your disposal. All the energy source was there. Um and I was really big on what that looked like over a two week period because, you know, over two weeks, if you're going out there, you're signing a whole lot of, you know, you're doing all the practice sessions, it's great for the fans and there are times for it. Um, but I also think at the end of the day, we were on a, we were on a mission to try and win this, win this Australian Open. And, you know, he got off to a great start, uh, did everything we asked for uh, at the start of the match. And, uh, you know, there was a moment in that match where, you know, Marat was able to find some rhythm. Uh, You've got to remember, he, he just came off beating Roger and playing a, a pretty epic match against Roger um, in the semi. And then, and then. Um, and then he found some enormous rhythm I think from the second set onwards Murat served 87% first serves and he was crushing the ball when, when Murat crushes the ball when he hits it flat and hard it's very hard for you to manipulate and change the direction of that ball um, yeah and he was ended up being a bit too good and late and couldn't change the momentum after after um, Murat actually found that rhythm and I, and I guess you know serving at 87% gives him a really really um, you yeah, know made things a lot more flexible for him in that moment so was it disappointing yeah it was shattering for us for sure uh, very proud um, time though because if you look at the work that we've done look what we were trying to achieve um, you, you know it's not that easy to achieve you know the dreams all the time um, but we gave it one hell of a ride and, and Leighton put it all out there on the court and um, you know and I, and I just think it's a uh, you know it was a credit to him to actually actually to do all those things over the over the years to actually give himself opportunities. Uh, and that's really the most important part. Um, yeah. Does it still hurt today? Yeah, it does. Just as bad. Uh, and it probably hurts Leighton just as bad as well because you know, I, I know for Leighton, you have know, to be the Australian Open champion and, and follow Pat Cash. Um, uh, you know, I um, mean, Cashy had those moments against, you know, um, at the Australian Open as well, where, you know, against some pretty, you know, amazing competitors. And, um, you know, it would have been great to actually, Step out there in a finals campaign and, and, and hold the trophy.
1: Absolutely. So, if you don't mind, I know you said you were training Layton Hewitt like no other athlete was being trained to be in certain situations. Yeah. I mean, people who listen to these podcasts eat that stuff up. If you don't mind sharing a little bit, not everything, but what was the training like? I mean, what were you putting Layton Hewitt through? I'm all ears.
0: <laughs> yeah. I'll look at it. I won't go into it depth, but I, but I, you know, I was a big, um, You know, I really, you know, at the fifth set of a tennis match, you're quite fatigued, um, you know, mentally, emotionally. And uh, it's really important to be able to learn to navigate, um, navigate yourself through the times when uh, there's a bit of anxiety around and there's there's fatigue, there's emotional fatigue, physical fatigue. It's things that you don't necessarily uh, become acclimatized to because you're not exposed to it. it. um, often enough. I mean, how how often? You know, if you look at the top hundred players in the world and ask them how often they're playing five set tennis matches, well, you know, there's very few that that would say that I played, you know, two this year. Um, and so, when you get to that pointy end and that extreme end, and you're three and a half hours in, or uh, sometimes more, um, how do you, you know, how do you manage yourself? So, so my our, my training, you know, that I created is is virtually about learning how to manage uh, the moments and how to actually spend time in that in that uh put yourself in that time you know spend, spend a lot of time where you're actually fatigued your decision making is questioned you know you'll challenge that your you know the the your energy systems are at, at different levels and you've got to actually try and figure things out and feel comfortable in those moments so um it basically that's basically uh, um but what we did around that, I probably, I don't, I won't, won't expose too much. I won't expose that, but that's what, <laughs> yeah. I, I was basically yeah, wanting uh, Leighton to be as um, well-educated and uh, with his body, mind, and what he could do under those extreme moments. And and if you are, when you get to those, you know, the back end of a fit set tennis match, um, it's amazing how more comfortable you are mentally in your mind. Um, yeah, so it was quite and it was it had quite extraordinary um outcomes for Leighton. As I said, he won thirteen. He was before before we started, I think he was five and five in his best of five set matches. And then he then when we got this and put this in play, he was he got to thirteen he was the you know, he from that point on when we when we we're actually able to sort of tick it off, uh he, he was thirteen and zero. Um and that's a that's a that's a pretty cool position to be in.
1: Sure. No, no, definitely. That's some tricks of the trade better kept, you know, for your next charge. So when we were talking about Roger Federer a few minutes ago, you said he had the whole alphabet. So you got an opportunity to coach a similar player, Gr- Grigor Dimitrov, who had seemed to have the alphabet. Mm-hmm. You know? yeah. And you said, you know, uh, so how different was that challenge in terms of coaching a player who had so many, you know, options in the, in the toolkit? And then his maturation is a lot different than what you've already spoken about, Leighton Hewitt, who would need to spend hours out there to win a match compared to some of the big hitters or the more, you know, more talented players. Not that Hewitt is not talented, but, you know, where I'm going with this. So how difficult a yeah. challenge is it for a coach to get the most out of Dimitrov? And how close were you to get the most out of his talents?
0: Yeah, look, it was, um, I mean, yeah, everyone's got different types of talents. Obviously, you know, Leighton is, you know, Speed playing under playing at the big big points of the big moments uh, with calm that's a talent. Uh, knowing what percentage shot to play at the right time that's a talent. So, there's a whole lot of different you know, his his the way he saw the ball off the racket off the serve is a talent. Um, so there's and then you've got the the visible the visible talents that we see as as tennis uh enthusiasts where we just you know we're spectators we watch and we see that you know that there's all the court craft and and you and Grigor is one of those. Kids, I mean, they, you know, his nicknames originally was, you know, which, which I, which I used to cringe at, um, and baby fed and Showtime Dimitrov, um, in the ATP book. I remember my, the first thing I did when I, when I agreed to do some work with him, I said, oh, we need to get rid of those nicknames, um, because it wasn't his identity. It wasn't him. And, uh, what I love about Grigor is, and I still do, uh, we're very close, uh, still today. And, um, uh, you know, there was only a, there was going to be a window for me with Grigor because my daughter was a certain age, and there was going to be a, there was going to be a time when I was going to put a bit of a line through uh, full time thirty you know thirty five week commitment to coaching thirty thirty five week uh, commitment because of my daughter's age um, as a young girl when I wanted to be around as as her father so and spend you know don't miss her um, journey in, as a young as a young girl so. Um, so that was my i guess the first unfortunate thing for me is i w- i would have loved to spend a a bigger volume of time with Grigor spending the two years that we had we've made rapid change um so he had the yes you're right he had all the skills i remember our very first practice session we are on the on a practice court uh before I said yes to spending time with him just you know a couple of days in l a and we just spent our first we had it we started hitting some balls um and Grigor was trying to show me all his tricks, uh, you know, all the shots that he's got. And, you know, with that, you're making a lot of errors and, you, you know, you know, so, and so it was very clear to me that um, no one had really educated Grigor on how to play the game. And that might be sound s- silly, but how, I, how do I really play the game? And what, what shots do I need at what times and how do I respect the ball and actually give out and, and, and really become a true competitor on a match court? Um, and I guess that was the biggest thing for me is to give Grigor that education, to, to get him to understand that it didn't need to be – I didn't need to see all, this, all the shots. I didn't need to see them. I needed to see a complete player that understood what it was like to compete properly um and when to use certain shots when not so it wasn't it was it wasn't narrowing his i wasn't putting a ceiling on him at all but i was just giving him a bit more of a feel of what what really gets the job done um and, and i know you've got all these weapons and i know we could you could play these shot from here and it looks it'll be great but doesn't necessarily win you you know i don't need to see i don't need to see um you know, on on ESPN, I don't need to see them show. You know, a highlights reel of of Grigor uh, of you playing, and but you haven't got a win. I'd rather see, you know, a, a little small snippet of you playing, but you've won six four six four, and just some, and did some standard stuff. Um, so I guess it was getting him to understand that we looked at some areas which were uh, where he was deficient, and you know. Um, and so we, so we went to work on those areas to make sure we strengthen those areas up because there's no reason why they wouldn't be strong. Got him to understand a bit more of a game, game style that he could play that lock into. Um, and also looked at the physicality side of things as well and turned him into a bit of a physical beast, uh, because that was really important. Yes, he's athletic. Yes, he was all those things, but was he a physical beast? Um, not at that time. So that, that education hadn't been there as well. So, um, so once, once we sat down and sort of, you know, and I, and and realistically you know from day day one once i first well once i agreed to spend some time with grigor and loved every minute of it love his family he's a brilliant young man um he i just i said what number you know i said you need to tell me where you see yourself what numbers near your name and once i understand where you think that's that is what number that is then we can go to work then we can build an action plan around it then we can go to then we can get down and roll our sleeves up and and get dirty and then and then what you'll see is very quickly there'll be a climb um, in your tennis and you know I remember the very first tournament we played I turned up to as coach just i was was in stockholm, and we had a you know we were, we were talking a little bit in the far fo- on the phone during the Asian swing uh, about some stuff, and then we got to stockholm and you know I gave him a couple of clear clear messages, I said, you won't serve, it. You'll, you'll serve every second serve to the backhand side and and you'll, you need to keep the ball alive when you're, when you're outside the, outside the tram lines um, and you're on the full run, you, I need you to keep the ball alive. Anyway, and, and I gave him a reason why this would happen. And, and again, just teaching him to compete a bit differently. Um, you know, he wins his first title and he plays David Ferrer in the final and, uh, and he's, you know, I think he's setting a breakdown. He comes back and he, and he competes and he learns to compete and, Wins his very first title on the tour, and like an amazing, and and as I said to him, you know, when you've got when you've got talent in front of you, and you've got someone who's willing to be exposed to development and be nurtured in a positive way to go, so you can actually bring your assets to the to the forefront. It's amazing how quickly those things can take shape, and and for him, it was, uh, you know, he was a sponge for information, and and he went to work, loved loved doing the work, and um, he really. I think enjoyed being exposed to um a bit more uh modelling around what it looks like to be a competitor um and to get the best out of yourself. And you know, and we saw that from that period on, he had a really big rise quickly, got into the top ten quickly, um, you know, was winning titles, um, you know, Acapulco, Queens, and you know, then we had the run into 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 women. I really thought, you know, he could uh take that take Wimbledon title that year. He lost to Novak in four sets. Um but I was really pretty strong around quietly uh that he could he could actually take that um you know with with a little bit of luck and uh, he had a couple of set points on in that fourth set to go five and I remember Boris was uh coaching uh Novak at the time and you know and Boris and I have always had a good relationship and he said, Oh, you were you're our number one threat. The person that I was more concerned about than anybody else in the draw, which is quite interesting hearing it from someone else who was looking after Novak. Um, where that so that's obviously where they thought their main threat was going to come from. Um, yeah. So so Grigor did a lot of really great things, was really trying to put some leadership in front of him, uh, to get him to be the person to start controlling his environment where you know my jobs really as a coach is to dilute my voice. Uh, and sort of make yourself a little bit redundant in, in a way, whereas, you know, you, you put the leadership model in front and, and you know, in, in certain, at certain times, depending on who the athlete is at the time, that there might be already some good stuff in front of them, but if they really need it. And then you want to sort of make sure that they're the person who starts leading, leading the game uh, and leading you. And you're, our, my job was always to build leaders in my team, you know, whether you're the physio, whether you're the, you're the player, um, whether you 're the agent you know we want leaders we want really forefront leaders with sort of broad thinking so you know, like, uh, was um, it was exciting to have um, as a player because there was so much you could do um, and I just think we made some really big progress really quickly and and it was going to be you know i was my my um, regret that i wasn 't able to To be the person to be there for five or six years, Um, because then I think there would have been some really big things that would have taken place because there was a lot of sustainability. So, um, you know, and change is is good at times, but also having the stability. If you look at the guys at the very top, their stability is really important.
1: Absolutely. Uh, That also, you know, makes me want to compare another player that you coach. Not directly with Dimitro, but Monfils. And a lot of common folklore on the tour and the fans is like Monfils is more showman. Of course, I don't doubt. I think he seriously wants to win. But how far is that removed from the reality? Or did you have to instill some seriousness into the overall charismatic package that is Gail Monfils? Uh-
0: uh, I'm smiling. You can't see me I'm smiling because he's he's like a son to me. Oh actually they all are. Um yeah, um Grigor's like a son to me as well. Um again, extremely close relationships still do. Um and I love Gail because Gail came Gail went out hunting. He wanted to get out of the uh of um of being in the same um space of just of of having the french merry-go-round and um he wanted to expose himself to something that's going to move the needle um and when he um so this was after leighton and and then and when he rang the first couple of times on the phone i thought it was my my best mate because the morning that morning we were talking about oh what's next and i said i might just sort of sit off for a you know for a two or three weeks, a month or something, and just sort of let things settle and I'll have a look and uh, see what excites me really in, that, in the landscape of players. And that night, you know, there was a phone call and it was, you know, it was someone said, oh, uh, Roger, this is going on the And I hung up a couple of times uh, because I thought it was my mate playing a trick on me. <laughs> uh, we, we're not talking and, and um, you know, and Gail was really clear. He He wants someone to to put some hard work into him to, to, you know, and and show them path and, uh, and get something out of him. And uh, not that he wasn't trying again, it's around, sometimes it's just around who's in front of you, what their drive is, how committed they are to developing you and making, uh, making you the best version and really attacking the game and learning to compete. And uh, instead of having some people around that want to just ride the horse, and I'm not, a, I'm not a horse rider. Uh, I gotta, if I'm going to ride, I'm going to pull out, you know, I'm going to pull out everything to make you be the best version of that horse, like really go for it. So, um, so you know, when we, when we agreed on, you know, I, I actually gave, you know, Gail a couple of non-negotiables uh, because it's just what I think, you know, if you want to go into this space and you want to move into the top 10 space, this is what it looks like. Um, but in the same, on the same discussion, I will never take away the heart and soul of who Gaumont fees is or any other athlete, uh, your DNA and what makes you tick and what your passions are and all, and all the things that are Gaumont fees or any other athlete. But what I want to do is bring some things around that could support that and actually support the journey that you're on and find out the reasons why you actually want to play the game. Why do you want to be the top 10 player? Why do you actually play the game? You know, it's an interesting question, right? Why do you actually play the game? Why are you playing the game? Uh, some people play it for different reasons. And, well, actually a lot of people are. So, and and they change throughout the course of their careers. So finding the why is really important because once you understand the why and where they would like to move with it, then you can sort of build some, uh, you know, you can build a business model around that uh, that's but again it 's about around the player and their DNA and actually just bringing things that, that you can bring that actually give them the opportunities and Gail locked in really quickly you know we, he came to South Australia and we did preseason here in, in the in the hot summer um, locked in he made some big changes and you know really you know quite quickly we we put him into a top ten space um, and he always wanted to compete uh, there were just things that um, you know it was just about how do you make him accountable to certain things and uh, he was really invested in wanting to be that type of uh, person and all along the way we had a bunch of fun i mean to to for me to learn you know the one thing i love is learning the different cultures learning the different environments their upbringings uh, i was really big on understanding you know understanding you know I've, I've gone from an australian i'm jumping into onto onto a french you know i'm jumping in with the with the french uh, someone who's, you know, his dad lives in Guadeloupe um, and mum's from Martinique, and there, and so you've got to understand their, their whole cultural upbringing. How was he brought up? You know, what's this? What about the schooling? So I did a lot of, uh, did a bunch of work with about French schooling, and 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 wanted to see how they brought up young men, um, because that was important to understand that because we probably operate here in Australia a lot differently than the French do. Um, in a whole lot of areas, when they're bringing up young people, so and it would be the same in the US and, and other cultures. So you've got to understand that environment. So you don't you don't want to be a person that comes in and tries to take over and change everything and make and make these and make things shift, but you don't have you don't respect or understand the upbringing or their environments. Um, I'm a real big one. on being educated first around all that, uh, and then finding out the why. Uh, um, and then putting stuff around it from there.
1: It's interesting that you, you know, you call Montfis and Dimitrov that you, you know, they're like sons to you. And that kind of speaks volumes, the kind of relationship and the kind of investment you make into people. So I want to ask you something more generic uh, about the coaching industry, because I remember when Larry Stefanke was coaching Fernando Gonzalez, he was Mm. approached by Andy Murray. And I think somewhere Stefanke said the difference was, Murray's agent called him and Gonzalez picked up the phone himself and called Stefanki and that kind of made Stefanke decide. So are you big on a player approaching you? How big is that a connection in today's business or is that lacking? Is it becoming more, more, you know, driven by agents and more professional than what it used to be even say 20 years ago?
0: Uh, yeah, look, I, I think all my, all my guys have actually approached me. Um, which was interesting. I like that. You know, Gail rang uh, Grigor, um, and eight they, they were together uh, when they when they spoke to me. So the Grigor was in the room. Um, uh, Joe Wolf was longer. Joe Willie was. Uh, you know, uh, we only were only going to spend a pocket of time together. It was actually calculated like that uh, to make some real shifts, which we did. It was really, really, really cool, cool collaboration. Um, but I'd not, I'd known Joe for quite a while with with uh, Gail, so we were you know, both living in um, Switzerland, uh, spending a lot of time practicing with each other. So they were easy. Him and his agent at the time was, you know, it was very easy conversation. So I do like the player ringing up because, um, you know, there was, uh, you know, and and there've been, you know, there've been quite a few other high profile players that have actually picked up the phone and uh, and spoken to me as well over the journey. Um, But the, and I do like that. And because you want to hear from them, and you know to be able to go to go back and forth with an agent for three or four days, and then you know, and then and then there's a commitment, but you actually haven't spoken to the player yet. Uh, really weird, because I actually want to, I want to, I want to feel their their energy or and what they talk about, and and you know, and just and just spitball and ask some questions. I mean, you know, be be curious. You know, for them to be curious, for for me to be curious, and. Um, and then get a lot around that. And then you I guess you can, you can get a bit more of an understanding around that. So, yeah, I think, look, there's, there's still a long way to, you know, there's, a, there's still a long way to go in that space, um, I think, because what tends to happen in our game at the moment, and it has done for a long time, is that if you're around the scene and you're seen um, and you've, you've, you're, you're gone from a position Someone else might just say, they'll they'll pick you up because you're around. Um, so I think there are times when agents don't legitimately explore uh, the right avenues for their players, and and the process isn't um, done at a level which the sport is played at. Now we're talking about an elite global sport, and I I some of the collaborations um, would not match. Uh, the level of the sport, unfortunately. And, and the only, the only one it lets down, um, it lets them both down actually, the player and the coach, because, um, you, it's really important to actually get something that's actually going to be able to, you can see a relationship being built because it, it will, you spend too much time with each other, not, uh, to be able to, you know, to, to, to think that that's not a, part, a big part of, um, their collaboration.
1: Well, that that does make sense, and kind of that's the kind of stuff we would like to hear on this kind of podcast. So, if you're okay for ten more minutes, I have a few questions, then we can wrap this up.
0: Yep, perfect.
1: Uh, so, again, Nick Kyrgios, your countryman, you know, has been the most polarizing figure in all of tennis for the last say seven, eight years since he took, since he you know started playing on the tour. And this past six, seven months, he's displayed a commitment and level that a lot of us thought is not there anymore. How do you see the new Kyrios? Is this something, you know, you knew was around the corner? Are you surprised as like most of us? And what's the upside? Is this sustainable going solo like he does without a coach? So your thoughts on that whole, uh, the Kyrgios package? Uh, yeah, well,
0: well, you know, Nick's 27 years of age now going, going, you know, or going to 28. So he's a matured, you know, he's virtually been around for a decade, right? Um, so it's a long time. Um and so I guess there's maturity that comes along with that, discovering yourself and knowing what you're you know, I think that changes throughout the journey as well. We all do. You know, we you know, we're you know, we're 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 continually discovering things and and uh exploring. And um so I mean it's it's healthy to see Nick um locking in and actually wanting to give uh the level that he's um, that he's offering, I just think that's a, it's healthy for the sport. I think it's healthy for uh, Nick. He's obviously found some things that have actually that have stimulated him to actually do that. Um, whether it's personally, whether it's off the court, whether it's a, a different type of enjoyment of the game and and the travel. He's always said he doesn't like the travel. Um, you know, the reality is probably you know a lot of players go through that as well. But it's part of the it's you know it's part of the circus. And um it's part of the sport and and you sort of got to work out ways of managing that so you get a bit of best of both worlds, but you know it's always for the game, I think it's exciting if if we do see uh Nick play it, you know play it all obviously all the majors, all the masters series and a few other events um you know yeah he does he does uh he's entertaining when he plays when he's in there and he's competing um you know he's and he's competing hard because he's got. You know, he, he's a player that walks on the court with a lot of weapons uh dangerous we know and um that's well that's well documented his danger and what he can do and who he can beat um and you know so so i guess we'll just you know time will tell um you know we've watched we've watched for a while now and and um time will tell let's let's see if we you know now at this stage how what that sort of looks like moving forward and if there's you know there's another there's another couple of levels To go in in that story, so um, yeah, it'll be interesting though. I mean, he's—I'm not sure whether you like him or not, or whether you like what he offers. But you know, when we when we see Nick turning up and he's competing and he's right into it, it's the that's the best version of him um, because it's exciting because you watch and you watch with excitement around uh, what's going to take place on the court. Uh, for the positive because he's dangerous. He's quite electrifying with what he can do with the ball. So, um, you yeah, know, that's always exciting to watch in any sport.
1: Sure it is. Uh, this year also saw Carlos Alcaraz reach world number one. And there was this consensus throughout the big three era that tennis has gotten older. Like Vavrinka started winning when he was like what, 27 or 28. And now with Carlos becoming the first teenager, since so long to win a major. Do you think we are at a, at a, at a shift at the game where we'll start seeing more uh, winners coming under 2021? Or you think Alcaraz is more like an outlier and the game is still physical and most peaks will start around
0: 23-24? Uh, yeah, I do. I, I, think, I think he's an outlier. Um, how, I mean, how exciting is he? Uh, I love watching him play. And, what, and just, just think of this. The minute he was born, Alcaraz, and the minute he got exposed to tennis, have a look at the education pathway. He's watching rapper the whole way through. There's his idol, you know, or Roger, but, but his countrymen. Have a look at the countrymen that play in that time, in his first 19 years, um, and when he was able to be exposed to tennis, and what the messages are. He would have, and what he's exposed to: hard work, commitment. Real respect of the game. Real respect to your opponent. Never give in. Um, you know, just it just can having good people around you. Um, you know, really important. You know, look at who's around you. You can pretty pretty well understand what character that person is going to have, um, and their and their commitment and and their purpose and drive and so and their education pathway is going to really be accelerated. So he's been uh, fortunate enough to be in front of all that. Which is which is gold. You couldn't you couldn't pay anything for that education. And he's obviously a real talent. And what I love about him is he's prepared to put himself on the line. And he's got a pushback mechanism. So when he's when you're coming at him, and if you're if you're a big name player, he's pushing back at you. Uh, and he's only and he's and he's young, and he wants to compete. You know, and, and when I talk about competing, wanting to compete, and learning to compete, that's what. I guess that's what I'm talking about. When you look at someone like Alcaraz, he's, he's competing. He's out there and he's got you know, he's going he's going after it. He's not afraid to play shots. He'll take some he'll take risks, he'll he'll be aggressive, he'll come into net, he'll he'll you know, he'll he'll use the full court, which I'm I'm a massive um you know, I I'm a massive believer in, in, in the way the game should be played. And he then pushes back at you. And he feels like he's never out of it. And he's not going to surrender to Big name players or people that have been there longer than him, because he thinks, "Wow, you know, he's he's in awe." There's there's none of that. Not so that's competing. Um, and can they can you keep turning up and doing that? Well, I don't think so. If you look at the group, you know, I mean, Rapper's still around. I don't think he's going anywhere uh, in the next few years. I wouldn't think so. So you've still got to get through Rapper, um, and we know what can. You know, these guys just don't give you give you a passage. And Novak's obviously very much, uh, staying around for the next bunch of years. And there's no reason why Novak's going to fall off, um, you know, in, in his positioning. I I can't see it unless physically there's some real, um, and he loses a passion for it, but I don't think that's going to happen. You know, we've seen these guys just be so sustainable with their passion and love for the game. And then, and then you look at, um, you know, you, you look down the, you're down the, the road, and you've got you've got Casper who's 23, you've got pass who feels like he's been around for a while now, who's 24, going to be 25. Zverev, who's been a, who's you know, who's uh, I think the seventh or eighth highest career prize money earner in the game ever, who's 25. Um, and I know the prize money means nothing, but you know, he's 25. Um, yet to win a major, uh, Felix, who's had it having a great run, you know, I really enjoy the way Felix plays. Um obviously around Uncle Tony now, but he's got, you know, the belief systems there now in him to go out and, and perform week in, week out. And he's having a real purple patch and uh, 22 years of age. And uh, he's still going to prove himself in a major, uh, but um, at a level. And you get, you know, can, you just got to, you've got to be a serial offender of getting to second weeks. That's my opinion is that you've got to be able to turn up to the majors and actually get yourself into second weeks more often than not to give yourself that window and, um, you know taylor fritz twenty five he's, he's found his game rublev twenty five can he win a major i'm not sure i i don't you know, i'm not sure uh, i don't think so i think you need a few more things to go his way there Taylor fritz is a real talent sinner you know twenty one year old who's you know, he's twelve in the world but i've got a lot of upside he's now darren Cale's now got um, got him um so he'll get he'll get a lot of upside from darren uh, in there i think learn more about his game and And then there's Chapeau who's 23 years of age. So you look at those guys: Tiago at 24, um, and Rune at at 19, who's who's now coming on the scene, at 18 in the world. So when you go through those guys, they're in their mid 20s, aren't they? And moving into the they're they're moving from the mid, you know, they're going mid 20s up. So it's really hard. You can see it's hard to win one, Um, and there obviously will be winners uh, coming from it. But I'm not sure if we're going to get the 19 year old that can um stick their chest out like Alcaraz has and and or an 18-year-old and come through. It's the game is so demanding. Um and your windows probably better now because there was a period there where that second week was owned by Roger, Rafa, Novak, Andy, Warinka was in there. You know, they they actually literally owned the second week, didn't they? (laughs) So so uh you know, if there was if there was someone in the semis that was different, you know, we were we you know, we we were guessing who that was gonna be. But um so great opportunities for players. I think Alcaraz, what he does do is he he and and also with Casper uh, making the final there, they they give everybody um newfound belief that they that we can actually get there as well. And then you see Tiapo making a semi and, and so, you know, you're actually all of a sudden talking about different names and and they're all seeing themselves as potential now opportunists, uh, having opportunities, and and that's a different. What it does, it actually builds a different belief system in your in your tennis game and where you stand in the game, and and that's really important, I think, for um, uh, for young guys growing up. Uh,
1: another counter question uh, to the players you mentioned is like, I, at least I encounter this on Twitter a lot. A lot of analysts think C. C. his best chance is shrinking. He can only win on clay because his back-end return. It's not a liability, but for a top player, it's kind of not a strength. So do you see like someone like Pass who's 23, but you said he's been around, seemed like forever. You think a guy like that can make some adjustments at that level? Someone can come along and fix that, and him being a factor going forward on all surfaces?
0: Uh, I think someone can fix that, fix the area you're talking about. Um, you know, it's, Sometimes it's hard for a single-hander as we as we see, but you know, Stan's won them, Rogers won them, you know, there's certain things you can do. Um but you've got to you've got to be prepared to take maybe, you know, maybe it's you know it's time for Titsapass to, to take some uh, some other you know, listen to another voice. Uh you know, really committed really in a committed way. Um because you know because he has you know he has his group around him. He has the odd pop in and out. Um, uh, but that doesn't really happen too um, too often. Just, but, you know, ma- for imagine this is another voice. For longer? Uh, I'm, I'm, well, I know Mark was there at Wimbledon, but I'm not sure. And then maybe at the US, uh, yes, at the US, but I'm not sure. You know, there's not, you know, is it the day, is it the weekly, you know, is it someone there that's with him for 25 weeks of the year? Um, that's going to really have a look at maybe ways of tweaking to actually give him the, 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 bit of, bit of extra. And I, I would like, I'd probably like to see that if I was the past, just to have some other voice that's there for quite a while, for quite a significant amount of time during the year to, to maybe look at different ways. You know, as you said, he's 24 going to 25. So, um, but sometimes, you know, this is the beauty of our sport, right? It's, uh, they, uh, the sport is about, you know, the player goes and they're not going to a club and but looking after, you know, being coached by a coach. They get to, they get to decide what their environment looks like. And uh, there's a lot of moving parts in, you know, in, in the tennis environment with certain players and what they believe they need and um, who they need in their corner, who they don't need in their corner. So um, they live and die a little bit by some of the choices they make. Hmm.
1: Again, one more on Carlos Alcaraz. A lot of people, would say we are being victim of the moment because everybody's saying he's double digit major material. Do you work like that? Do you want to make that kind of a bold prediction? Have you made it anywhere? He does seem he's mature enough for his years. He's playing better than some of the guys who are older, but I personally don't want to give 10 majors to anyone. I want to see him in at least three, four before I make that kind of a prediction. Well, where do you sit on that over and under?
0: (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm with you. I'm not giving anyone 10 majors. It's, it's bloody hard to win one. Uh, Ask Verre how hard it is to win one, or pass or you know, or <laughs> these guys that are, you know, it's just it's just, or Marin Cilic. Ask him how hard it was. And okay, he played in the, you know, he played, he's played in the heaviest era, uh, Marin. So, um, so it's definitely harder. So now, yes, there's it's there's a bit of looseness, in the, and the and the majors are up there, and there's and there's there's going to be room. Uh, and there are going to be major winners. You know, there's definitely these guys, there's going to be guys here that are going to win majors, but um, uh, have we got, you know, have we got a, um, have we got a 10 major winner right in front of us? You know, it, you can easily get caught up in the, in the fantasy of that straight away with, with Carlos. And Hey, it would be, we probably do want it. I mean, your sport needs, your sport needs two things. Sport your sport, whatever sport it is, it need rivalries because we live in, we love the rivalries. We, it's a must watch, you know, so, um, we want the rivalries and we probably need one, you know, we need one or two to be really big in the sport. So where they can, where they are the promotional, you know, they're the weapon. So we've been fortunate with Roger Raff and Novak and, um, to be there and then Andy, obviously in the UK, but, um, and, and around the world, and, and Stan. But those three guys have significantly been the big drivers. But um, that's what the sport needs. So let's hope someone can win uh, 10. <laughs> well, they, they'll be seen as one of the all-time greats. They'll, do, they'll be nowhere near the, the, the 20, 21, and 22 we're looking at, which is extraordinary. Um, but it is extraordinary, isn't it? We need even to say those things. But, yeah, it's hard for me. I, would, I couldn't put a number near his name right now. It would be... Um, yeah, that would be a that'd be a bit it, low percentage, wouldn't
1: it? <laughs> so, so, no, I agree. So, last question: Is there any name out there that you would be that'll make you go back to the coaching ring? I know you're doing media these days, but is there some talent uh, that excites you if the right opportunity um, comes?
0: Oh, look, I like the. I still, I could, I like the consulting side of the coaching, where you could actually come in and have, you know, ten weeks with a group, you know, with a coach with their team, like looking how that's working and actually being sort of sitting, sitting there and actually putting a different set of eyeballs on it for periods of time. Um, And because, you know, I I have a 15 year old daughter at the moment, which actually takes me away from being a full-time coach. Um, And so that was my commitment to her at the moment. So, um, but to be able to consult and be involved with, with some of these players and actually then look at their, look at their games. And so you you sort of get a bit of independent activity. Um, there's a, there's quite a, you know, there's a, ho- there's, there's a lot those young guys. Uh, I like, I like players that are young, um, quite, uh, you know, not, not a lot of distractions, but also, you know, quite flamboyant that want to actually be, you know, that want to really go after the game and actually evolve and use the whole tennis court. So I like that type of player. Um, and there's, there's, you know, there's quite a few there that, you know, I mentioned that would be, you know, they'd be exciting guys to work with because they're, A, the they're young. They're, they look like they're pretty hungry, um, and they want to evolve. And, and so, yeah. So, hopefully, you know, that's that's my my space at the moment is doing personal performance with the athletes, uh, looking at their, looking at their setups uh, and adding some value. And um, but doing it full time right now is yeah, it's just not available to me at the moment because of I need to be dad. Um, so, and uh, I've got to be good at that. I've got to try and get a got to try and get a win there. That's really important.
1: Absolutely. Wish you all the best. And thank you so much for your candid and generous views. I enjoyed the conversation. Hopefully the listeners will love this. Thank you, Roger.
0: Thank you. Appreciate your time.